Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new Oscar contender, Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen-led uh, Peter Farrelly film, Green Book. We're also going to be taking a look at the new Yorgos Lanthimos film, The Favorite. We're doing them in that order, and if you can swing it, strongly encourage you to stick around for both reviews because uh, we've got a lot to say. So please do yourself a solid listen to Green Book and The Favorite. We're also going to talk about a, a, a certain unique screening of Love Actually that Andy went saw over the weekend, and he has told me nothing about this, so I'm going to be just <laughs> as surprised as you are. Here's hoping it makes for a good segment. Before we get to all of that, the news, three stories this week. And the first, Robin Hood is the biggest box office bomb of the year. Who could have predicted? Who could? Andy, uh, what, do you, what do you think about Taron Edgerton's Robin Hood? Uh, so this isn't a surprise at all. This no. movie looked terrible from the beginning. Every trailer just made it look worse and worse. It basically looked like Kingsman meets Robin Hood. You know, it tried to put modern action into a period piece, and it just looked terrible, and so I'm not surprised that it bombed. It's a shame. Uh, I, I think it's got a pretty good cast for what it's worth. you got Ben Mendelsohn, uh, Jamie Dornan for what he's worth, Taron Edgerton in the lead, and Jamie Foxx. All great. Uh, you got you got Otto Bathurst, who who directed most of Peaky Blinders, directing this film, which is tremendous. Uh, for what it's worth, like there's a lot going on in this movie, and and I, I you know it looks from an action standpoint really neat. I know they posted some behind the scenes stuff online of of Taron Edgerton shooting shooting bows and arrows with the best of them. What is it about this movie that people didn't want to go see? Let's do a very brief autopsy. What is it that people looked at and thought, ah, not worth my time? So to me, the action just looked really kind of silly and out of place, you know, it because it, it, it essentially has action like that you would see in The Raid or a real modern action film, but then in a period piece. And the other thing, it just had really cliche story set up and eye rolling dialogue um, from what I can see. And actually, from what I understand, like Robin Hood has not really been a, a very easy property to make successful other than the, the uh, Prince of Thieves one from like the early 90s. Right. I was going to say, the most successful Robin Hood adaptation that I know is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Cosner and a brilliant performance by Alan Rickman uh, back in the 90s. Um, there's also like the Mel Brooks, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, but those right. are like the two popular ones and Disney's Robin Hood. The fact is, there's already three versions that people know pretty well, and there have been others since that have tried. And it like we all know the story, you know. It's like rebooting Spider Man like three or four times. Like we got it. Uh, we don't need to see it again. Yeah, we and got it. Uncle not, Ben's not gonna make it. We know. <laughs> yeah, and there's this odd like little little section of like period piece action films like this, uh, very similar to Guy Ritchie's King Arthur: Legend of the Sword, which also makes an appearance in this because <laughs> Robin Hood is on track to be the worst box office bomb since that, which grossed 148 million out of 175 million. My point is. Like, there's this odd little section of, of action film where they're like, ooh, we'll make it, like, medieval, and we'll use modern lighting, and we'll make it look all CGI and cool, but really it'll be old style. Nobody's into it. Nobody has ever been into no. it. It's, no. it's a bomb every time. It's, it's a film, like, 10 years too late. Like, this looks like it belongs in 2004 Troy. You know, Very like much so. That era. Yeah. The, the other thing that's worth mentioning is that there was really, really big competition that it was up against. So it was up against sure. Creed Two, Ralph Breaks the Internet, uh, Fantastic Beast still hanging around, and The Grinch. So you got four pretty big heavy hitters, and then this. 
Right. Any anybody who was particularly interested in this probably had something better to go see. Um, not to mention Ralph Breaks Internet, which we talked about last week, made a bajillion dollars and is still at the top of the box office, as far as I know. Yeah. So bummer on Robin Hood. Um, for what it's worth, I hope I hope uh, man, I, <laughs> I hope that Elton John movie turns out okay. Because if not, I'd say Taron Edgerton might be in some trouble. You know. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, gotta, I was gonna say uh, that that looks like Bohemian Rhapsody light, and we our fans know how we feel about Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, here's hoping. I like, I like smelling John. Speaking of box office, this one is a surprise. Uh, crazy Rich Asians did not have a crazy good opening in China. This number is abysmal. And I'd like for you to tell people how much it made. Go for it. Uh, just a little over $1 million, $1.2 million. Oh, in China. That is really bad. Yeah. $1.2 be- million. Dollars. Yeah, so the whole thing with this film is... You know, they thought it would translate well into Asian markets. Um, but a couple things. So the story is about a family from Singapore, not China. So there's a disconnect there. The other thing, um, historically, rom-coms just don't translate well into foreign markets because a lot of what makes them funny or entertaining is very cultural. So if you're not from the States, you're probably not going to get it or it's just not going to translate or be as funny and entertaining. Sure. They also have a lot of rom-coms in China, so it's not like they're short. You know, like that's that's a pretty easy uh, film to make over there on top of foreign uh, films that they get that are often from us, things like action. Like we kind of cover that, so they take kind of emotional stuff over there uh, a lot more seriously in, in what they produce at home. So when one comes over, they don't really need it. So that doesn't historically do that well. Additionally, it's worth noting that uh, this movie presents uh, pr- presents – Asian culture in a different light, and a lot of people said uh, it's 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 snobby, and that's not how it really is. That's fake. It's uh, uh, <laughs> I, I love this comment. Somebody said uh, it feels like going to a Chinese restaurant in America to eat General Tao's chicken. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it hurts, but yeah, they said it's 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 a fairy tale for ABCs, which is shorthand for American-born Chinese instead of an actual Chinese story. Even still. I, I can't help but be a little surprised at how poorly it did. I mean, that that is like shunned across the board over there. Yeah, well, I mean, it is essentially, a, it's really a film for Asian Americans. And it's not a Chinese film. It's not for Chinese people, especially. So I can see, I can see why it didn't really get traction over there. Sure. And for anybody that didn't see it, it's particularly ironic because that's kind of the main conflict of the film, yeah, or at least one it's of them. Super, it's super meta, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's very meta. Uh, so, bummer uh, on Crazy Rich Asians, I guess. Uh, but it did make a bajillion dollars over here, so for what it's worth, it's doing okay. And we need to get out of the box office and start talking about movies that are upcoming. We've got one more story this week, and of course we're talking about comic book films. Man, I'm going right. to be honest, I, I were we're starting to sound a little fanboy you know what I mean? Like, we're starting to go too far, but... This is where film is now. I guess this is just this is this is what we're about. It, it's hard with you know with I, th- I think I read somewhere Marvel has released twenty films in the last ten years, so an average of two comic major comic book releases every year. I mean, it's hard not to talk, and that's just that's just Marvel. That doesn't count the stuff that DC's lighting on fire. Sure, or or you know some offshoot studio that does some kind of weird. I don't know. I think it's something like Kick Ass or Watchmen. Anyway, uh, the last story we have: Marvel developing, and I want to make sure I get this pronunci- pronunciation right. Shang Chi, Shang Chi. Sure, 
Sure. You're Marvel the developing <laughs> Shang-Chi. You pick the story. Marvel developing Shang-Chi movie with Wonder Woman 1984 writer. David Callahan is penning the film, which will be the studio's first to focus on a superhero of Asian descent. The first time I looked at the story, I thought to myself, that can't be true. There has to be another hero of Asian descent. And I can't think of any. Yeah. As a, as a comic book you know, aficionado myself. Um, I know that DC made a push in it in its last reboot to uh, they. There's an Asian Superman that's Chinese. Um, I think he's just called New Superman or something. So there's definitely a push in the comic book world to feature more um, Asian people in in comics. And now, so the the put they're doing a push to finally do it in movie. And you're right, there there hasn't been any. It's just the same way there hasn't really been a female led Marvel film. You know, it's kind of taken some time. Uh, so Shang-Chi is, uh, was originally invented in, in the 70s and is like a kung fu assassin. And that's all I really know. I don't, I'm not familiar with the character at all. But like you said, the big story is that it's going to be the first, um, you know, Asian-based superhero. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested for what it's worth. Uh, I, I, he, he's, a, he's a male character, so it's not female like Wonder Woman. But I, one step at a time. All right, we'll get there. It's, again, it's crazy to me to think, like, I think back through, you know, 20 Marvel films. I'm like, Mantis. surely, surely one of them. Yeah. And, and, and like, no, I, I can think of, uh, uh, Mantis is the only person I can think of. And she's like I, a C-list character in that, in Guardians. I was going to say, yep. The character from Guardians. I, I forgot her name was Mantis. I was just going to say her. She's the only one I can think. Um, that's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> that's not good and bringing that to my attention makes me think yeah we totally do need this so this story is encouraging uh for what it's worth but i guess we'll keep people posted on what's coming uh up in shang chi land and then we should move on to our first uh film of the evening andy you've agreed to take the summary on this please take it away green book Won't you call me? anyone can sound like beethoven for your music what you do Oh, you can do that. So this is the new film by uh, Peter Farrelly. I can't remember what else he's done, but I know he's got a big name oh, in Hollywood. Oh, man. I, I looked before the show. Do you mind? Can yeah, I, go ahead. Can go ahead. For go a second? ahead. Yes, please. He's the director. He's written and produced a lot of things, but to namely direct. He's directed films such as Dumb and Dumber, There's Something About Mary, Me, Myself, and Irene, Stuck on You, Hall Pass, The Three Stooges, and Dumb and Dumber 2. So... Yeah, so a lot, a lot big, of great comedies in there. A big name in yeah, like mid '90s, early 2000s comedies. Slapsticky, yeah, right. Comedies. Um, so, anyways, back to back to Green Book. Uh, the film uh, centers around uh, Doctor Shirley, who is uh, played by Mahershala Ali, who is a classically tra- trained pianist who embarks on a concert tour of the South in 1960s America. Um, he recruits uh, Viggo Mortensen's character uh, named Tony Vallelonga, uh, who's kind of a, a streetwise, tough... Uh, he, you know, he, he's a bouncer at a nightclub, and so he employs him to be his driver and kind of be his bodyguard, make sure he gets to all his concert tours. So right now we, we have a, a setup that, that we know there's going to be a lot of conflict in because it's the Jim Crow South. The other thing is they're very different characters. Dr. Shirley is incredibly refined. He's well-spoken. He's highly educated. He has multiple PhDs. He's a classical pianist. Um, 
Tony is a streetwise guy. He he works at nightclubs. He has a short temper. He's casually racist. He uh, <laughs> you know is pr- is prone to is prone to violence. You know, so th- they come from opposite sides of the of the spectrum, and they're kind of forced into uh, the situation where you know he's got to drive them for eight months and go on this tour of the deep south. Um, so that's that's the setup, and I, I do want to mention before we get into this, there has been some really uh, a lot of backlash and controversy about this film, which we definitely want to talk about. And at the same time, there's been high praise, so it's it's a strange uh, kind of juxtaposition, but we definitely want to get into it. Uh, Zach, what do you think? Man, I was fairly optimistic about this movie. I realize this already sounds negative. Like, oh no, where's he going? I, I was really <laughs> optimistic about this movie. Uh, I, it definitely looks like an Oscar contender coming up towards the end of the year. It stars Mahershala Ali, uh, winner of Best Actor last year. Uh, I love me some Viggo Mortensen. I, I, every time I watch Lord of the Rings, I'm stunned by the character that is Aragorn and the man who's able to play him seamlessly. Uh, because looking at him now, you can hardly recognize that the same person. That is the sign of a good actor. These guys are both great leads. I'm looking forward to this odd kind of odd couple relationship they've got in driving together. And it's the 60s. And, you know, obviously there's race relation problems. And they're going to the Deep South. It's a fun, almost like buddy cop kind of misadventure with just a, an undertone of, uh, you know, potential race relations and, and working that out. And I thought, man, this will be really cool. But ultimately... It just felt kind of lukewarm. It never really got as hot as I wanted it to. It never really reached the highs I, I, I hoped for, and it never really hit the lows that I craved. And ultimately, I walked out of it thinking, man, that was all right. Uh, what did you think? Uh, well, one thing, it, it's important to remember, so this book book is, or the, uh, the screenplay was written by Tony Vallelonga's brother or someone related to his family. So it's it's the... The driver, who who is white, who's an Italian American, uh, the story is essentially told from his perspective, and he is essentially the main character. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I, I liked it um, as a classically trained musician myself. Um, you know, I related very much to uh, Doctor Shirley's predicament because, in addition to him obviously being a black man in in Jim Crow South, he he also struggles to identify, at least in the movie, with his own culture and with his own people because he is you know somewhat wealthy, he is refined, he is educated, and but other people like him are kind of the exact opposite. Um, but uh, overall, I mean, I th- I thought it was funny it, it has a lot of like you said these buddy cop uh, moments it has a lot of serious moments um and and to me the, the main thing i took away from it is that it's about confronting racism it's not just racism happened it was like to me i got this message of of how we confront because they as they slowly get into the the south and they go farther and farther into the deep south they start to encounter more and more aggressive racism and you know initially they kind of brush it aside or they just kind of deal with it and eventually it comes to a head where where both dr shirley and uh tony kind of take it take it on or take a stand um, and it, it, the film, to me at least, was also about taking a stand on on a large stage, but also the smaller stage, like with your friends and your family. When someone related to you says something that they shouldn't, and you know, to not be afraid to stand up, it's about having courage in those private moments to stand up to your friends and family. Um, so I kind of got a lot out of it, um, and then and I enjoyed it. 
But then I read a lot of this backlash, which, uh, like I said, we'll get into. Yeah, I want to get to that because I've only read a little bit. So I'm hoping you can shed some light on that. So stay tuned for that. But for now, thematically, I, I, I agree. Uh, the movie tries to tackle a lot and it does a great job through its two leads. Uh, Viggo Mortensen and Maharshala Ali do a fantastic job of playing these characters. They feel very genuine. Uh, it, 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 at first, I was a little distracted by Viggo Mortensen, but like I said, I think that's just because of me. I look at him and I think Aragorn, I think uh, a history of violence. And in this, he's like 60 pounds overweight, and my God, does the man eat the whole movie he's eating. And I figured at some point they'd be like, hey, maybe you should stop eating, look after your health, Tony. No, no, he eats the whole movie. Like He, did, he is chewing all of the scenery, man, and yeah. he's got this super thick accent. And he's going for it. And and Mahershala Ali, meanwhile, plays his character, Dr. Don Shirley, who's super reserved and, and sits in the back under his blanket. And he's very intelligent and he's very deliberate with his words and the way he plays piano. That's all fantastic. Like, that felt great. But ultimately, like, the way these two guys interact with each other, it, it almost just feels a little surface. It never... It never I just felt like it never really dug in where it needed to. Of course, there's change over the course of the film. Tony becomes a little bit more understanding, as does Dr. Don, of how, you know, the other side of the fence lives and and how we can work with each other and how really at the end of the day, we're not all that different. But at the same time, it does a big job. It, it, It does a lot of work to draw those lines and say these two are very different people. Tony is is white and he is considered dumb. Dr. Don Shirley is black and he is considered smart. He has PhDs. Tony doesn't. Like, you know, Tony, Tony gambles and drinks and Dr. Don does drink and, and, and has doesn't really have a family, but Tony does. Like, I guess they couldn't be more opposites and I get that, but... I don't know. I, I guess I just I, maybe I just rolled in thinking, well, I'm going to I'm going to go on this fun adventure with these guys and learn something. And like at the end of the day, I don't I don't feel like I really learned anything. It just felt a right. little uh, stale almost like I had seen it before. Mm-hmm. And that's um, you, you know, you're actually touching on uh, one of the controversies that I read, which is kind of exactly that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the music. Uh, the music in this film is phenomenal uh, because while he's a classical pianist, he's not necessarily playing like Chopin and Beethoven and Mozart. It's more of kind of a uh, modern, like it's a jazz trio kind of because it. the other people touring with him is a, a bassist and a cellist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, so it's kind of an odd, it's an odd mix, but it... Um, yeah, so it's a mixture of he he's playing classical stuff, but in kind of a pop or more modern way. But the the music's kind of a big part of the movie as well. Yeah, it's an interesting choice because there's definitely references to artists that I would know more. Some of the like Chubby Checker, Aretha Franklin, Sam Cooke. Uh, those are mentioned in the film and played a little bit on the radio. For the most part, what you hear is music that Don Shirley made. Um, and me and probably most general audiences aren't real familiar with that. So in that way, it was tough to kind of get into. I appreciated that it was good, but I lacked a connection to it, uh, cause he's playing really unique stuff towards the end of the film. You get a little bit more kind of a mainstream feel, and that is definitely easier to connect to. And I'm sure has some kind of thematic representation in his connecting with Tony and kind of coming down from his ivory tower a little bit. Pardon yeah. whatever pun that might be. I didn't mean for that to be anything, but Whoops. Uh, I did enjoy <laughs> it. And I did like the way uh, it looks with Mahershala Ali playing piano. I did a little research on this. 
he did a ton of training to get ready for it to make it look like he's actually playing those songs. And a lot of the stuff he plays in it was never transcribed by Don Shirley. It was just in his head. So the music composer, who also doubled as the the piano player in the film, who taught him everything, transcribed everything by hand and then put it down. And that's that's how they trained for the movie. But man, oh, okay. it really looks like he's playing that piano. If he's if he's not, I'd be surprised because it looks great. He sits up great. Like he's he's. I mean, he's an actor, you know, and you can feel yeah. it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I I play piano as well, so I definitely like I watch the hands, and I was like, yeah, I mean that. I, I would have a hard time telling telling the difference. You know, I know that Marsha Ali is not a trained concert pianist, so I, I was like, well, I doubt it. He's actually playing, but it's very convincing. It's convincing enough. I was honestly thinking for a little while maybe they'd like CGI'd his head on a body or something because I mean it looks that convincing with the fingers because I was doing the same thing. I was watching his fingers the whole time and like. It looks like he's playing what's being played, so I don't know. I, I did also want to talk about, uh, for a second, locations, because this movie goes all the way through the Deep South, and it does it through the titular Green Book. Uh, it does a lot of locations real fast. A lot of its interiors, you don't really get a good look at it, and it just kind of flashes on the bottom of the screen, hey, they're in Birmingham, or they're in Kentucky, where they are. And you get a little bit of stuff, like, oh, they'll stop at a Kentucky Fried Chicken, but for the most part it's kind of out of context and you don't spend a lot of time in any singular location. Uh, it turns out in the deep South racism is just kind of everywhere. Bummer. Yeah. You know? So I guess that's, that's the lesson I get out of that. But uh, did you have anything to say about how, or I guess where things were presented and how that felt? What do you mean? Well, I guess where, <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah. Well, what I mean is like it never, a lot of stuff, even though they were shooting in, like houses or concert halls, it never really felt like a studio. For what it's worth, like it felt like they were out on the road. Like it really did. All that stuff felt very real. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, someone who's played and uh, played lots of concerts and been on the road and toured and things like that, that it definitely had that feel. It's like, yeah, you you're living in the car, you're at hotels all the time, you're eating junk food all, all the time, and you know you're all you're hanging out backstage, and yeah, it definitely it was very authentic from like a musical. Uh, perspective as from a musician's perspective and lastly before we move on to the controversy uh personally i enjoyed the dialogue a lot at times it felt a little forced there there's a bit of uh, tony at the very beginning of the movie where he does something that is phenomenally racist and then later that seems to just go away like as he as he's going about his life he doesn't seem to be that person anymore and that felt a little out of character but for what it's worth the way the two men talk to each other interact how they kind of trade jabs back and forth like that all felt really good and they made for a really really cool little on-screen you know duo by the end of the movie i like i really did feel like they were friends yeah definitely all right so let's talk controversy okay so the, so there's a couple of 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 things here there's um one of one is the accuracy uh the, the or the lack thereof historical accuracy uh, don shirley's family has come out um very vehemently against this movie they're boycotting it uh, they're saying a lot a number of things didn't happen the way they did Oof. and um uh, so that's that's one side and that's um i will quote roger ebert as i always do when people say this we do not go to the movies for facts movies are fiction they are based on stories but lots of things are fictionalized and taken you know cinematic liberties so that's not surprising at all and and again the story is it's told by tony's brother so it's told from his perspective it's not the don shirley story told by don as told by don shirley well shoot it's um, not even that it's it's peter it's peter forelli's 
perspective, of Nick Vallelonga's perspective, of his father. Like, yeah, yeah. That, that all gets trickled down. So things get lost in the fray. But at the end of the day, you're right. It's all about the final product and how it comes together and whether or not an audience enjoys it. It doesn't have to be true to life. Right. So that that's the first thing is is definitely the historical accuracy as a lot of people had a problem with, particularly mm. Don Shirley's family. Uh, uh-huh. The second kind of uh, camp of controversy um, is a little bit more serious. Uh, a lot of people have found this movie kind of doesn't take racism seriously enough. They don't think that uh, racism in the Jim Crow South is portrayed accurately enough or harshly enough. And, they, you know, the the fear of being pulled over isn't wasn't really there so that's kind of where the other camp comes from you know a lot of people have accused this movie of just being a white savior film where it's tony's got to save uh dr shirley yeah so so in addition to oscar talk we also have people boycotting the film saying that it's like it's not taking racism seriously um and it's important to say that all these opinions are completely valid and you know i'm not about to dismiss any of these but it's it's important to talk about them to bring them up and uh, me personally I, I I that was not my experience of uh, again the, the historical thing is you know it's it's to me that's fiction and as far as the other the racism stuff uh, it just that was not my experience I didn't think it was a white savior film I didn't think it was that the racism needed to be portrayed more roughly. Um, that's like you always say you have to criticize a film for what it is not for what it isn't. Yeah, you know, it's funny watching this movie. I definitely thought Green Book lacked a lot in the sense, in in the way of direction. That was really where I felt it struggled the most. There's so many scenes in this movie I thought, you know, they could have... They could have shot this better. They could have done something cool here. When Nick is sitting alone in the... Or Nick, I'm sorry. When Tony's sitting alone in the bar after a long drive and he's frustrated with, with, with Dr. Shirley, like have, you know, have a good wide shot of him in that bar and him just alone over here. Like it kind of show that isolation never happens. Or when, when Dr. Shirley's frustrated that he's sitting in a car full of smoke that, that uh, Tony's been puffing on, like do, you know, do something kind of clever there. It never really happens. And, and that doesn't just translate to the subject matter of, of the small things in the films, in the film, but the big things like there, there, there's a scene in here where they do some harsh confrontations with racism, and and Doctor Shirley's got a whole bit that he says. There's a scene where they get pulled over in the deep south, and they have to deal with that. Like those scenes are there, but they don't hit as hard as it feels like they should. And if I'm gonna put that on anybody's shoulders, it's Peter Farrelly's, the director. To be fair, he's he's a comedy director, and he normally works with his brother, uh, uh, yeah. Stuck on You is the movie that comes to mind. He's working alone. This is his first film that's a drama. I do wonder if he pulled back from that a little bit. You know, He was maybe a little scared. It was like, I don't know how people are going to take this. This is my first time doing this. I'm just going to do this this way. And, and maybe if he had leaned in a little harder and been willing to take a, a more nuanced look at this stuff it would have come off better people would have appreciated it or maybe even respected a little bit more that was something i struggled with but that being said you can't say that that stuff isn't in the movie it is it just doesn't hit as hard as you'd like right so for what it's worth uh i guess i get where people are coming from a little um i think that is part of the reason i I would say the movie felt like i said stale Right, um, right. Because it doesn't quite like it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't quite get up to that roller coaster level I want. You know, I think of something like, and this is a horrible comparison because this movie is not the movie I'm about to mention. But I think of something like Twelve Years a Slave, like heart wrenching stuff about racism. Right. Exactly. This movie kind of doesn't do that. 
and that's okay. Like that's not that bad, but it does also make it feel like you're not really living up to the namesake of a green book that that motorists used to have to use, colored motorists used to have to use to travel. Um, or else they would be assaulted and accosted and God, God knows what else on the highway. Like, this is in that movie, but it never really, I don't know, it never really, like, materializes, you know? Yeah, and, and like I said, even though that wasn't my experience when I watched it, after reading those things, I could, like, I could definitely understand how someone might have that reaction uh, to the movie. And I was, you know, for sure. Yeah, and so that is a bummer. And I know when it comes to tackling topics like this, like it feels like you either need to, you know, go big or go home. You either need to get it right or not do it at all. But just like any movie, like that's not always the way it goes. You know, sometimes people make movies that aren't that awesome. Sometimes people make movies that don't quite get where we want them to go, and that's all right. In fact, I think that'll very much come up in the topic of our next film, The Favorite. So stay tuned for that. But for what it's worth. Green Book swings for the fences, and for me, it didn't quite get there. And for you, it did. It's it's up to you to decide how you feel about it. And and either way, it's probably a movie worth talking about um, just for that. So right. that's Green Book for me. Recommendations? Yeah. Uh, Andy, would you recommend... Or should I go first? I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess I always ask you. It's okay. fine. Uh, Andy, <laughs> would you recommend Green Book? Um, I would, like I said, I, I enjoyed it. Um, it's, it's kind of like you said, it's a buddy cop kind of dra- dramedy. If we can use that serial comedy is another yeah, word. I, an odd I couple kind of, yeah. Um, and it, you know, it, it touches on some very serious subjects. And like, to me, the, the message that stood out to me was about confronting racism in, on the big stage and on the small stage in, in your personal life with uh, friends and family. And that can be a very difficult thing to do. So that was, you know, a very kind of positive message that I got from it. Um, and I enjoyed uh, the music uh, immensely and just like kind of the, the musician's life. So I, I really enjoyed it and I would recommend it, but I definitely want people to know that there is a lot of controversy out there. And, you know, I'd be interested to, you know, talk with people who have those kinds of reactions that have been very negative. Uh, this is a very unique case for off script. Uh, this hardly ever happens. I don't know if I would recommend it. I, I don't want to say don't see Green Book. That's not it. But there's a lot of good stuff out there you can see. And this one, like I said, it just felt a little lukewarm to me. Andy didn't feel that way. So if you're thinking to yourself, wait, Andy Andy thought it was good. Great, go see it. It'll probably <laughs> be you. But for me, wait till it hits HBO. Wait till it hits Amazon Prime and check it out. Take a night in, relax, enjoy it for what it's worth. You know, turn off your phone and everything and watch the movie. But I wouldn't rush out and like pay the price of admission as fast as you can to see Green Book. It didn't blow my socks off. It's a good movie. Great performances, like I said. And we'll probably see it come Oscar season. But ultimately, it just didn't quite hit the high water mark. Right. So that's Green Book. Right. And, and I, I, th- I think uh, waiting for streaming is probably a safe uh, recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a safe recommendation. <laughs> Speaking of streaming, uh, we should talk about our next bit here. I'm not sure how this is going to go, but this is a movie that is available <laughs> on some streaming services. It's already out, and you chose to go see this in theater. Andy, please explain what's going on here. Okay. So, um, first of all, I'd like to say I went to Alamo Draft House three days in a row this week. My God. Um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, and on Saturday, I saw uh, one of these quote-along uh, screenings of Love Actually. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my... Uh, the 2003 uh, kind of Christmas uh, rom-com hit. Um, and, it, you know, it, and what they do at Alamo, they have, uh, you know, a bunch of props. They, they had, like, 
you know, confetti things for you to pop at your favorite moment. They oh, had wow. uh, these like British flags. They had uh, a couple of signs to hold up. Um, so it's one of these really fun kind of uh, si- situations. And, and it was really unique. The theater was completely packed. Like completely okay. packed, yeah. Um, and it's filled with people who love the movie, who could, qu- and you're allowed to like quote and sing when people are singing and cheer and yell. So I mean, it's almost like a sports thing. Um, <laughs> okay. Or when you or when you get together and, and watch a movie with your five friends and make comments the whole way through. It's kind of kind of like that. Um, and it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, however, I feel, <laughs> I feel like Love Actually has not particularly aged well. Ooh. <laughs> like. Like, to be fair, like most movies, if you look at any movie from 10, 20, 15, 30 years ago, a lot of stuff makes you, makes you kind of cringe. And there's a lot of stuff in, in here that is really still good and really funny. And then there's some things that are problematic. Love um, Actually, of course, came out in 2003, 15 years old now. Yes. Yes. So um, my main issue, issues with it that, that kind of stick out is that so all the main characters are just uh, kind of middle-aged white guys. Oh no! Uh, so so it so it it really lacks any kind of diversity. Um, Andy, Andy, stop! Women, I know a lot of women that really like this movie. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you're trying well, well, on thin ice like, here, bud. Like, I mean, I, I I mean, I laughed. I mean, I still enjoy it, but I it's still like w- uh, I feel like Hollywood's come a long way in its efforts to be diverse um, and to have equal representation. And so to to see this, you know, it's like going back in time, and it's and it's fun. You can't compare movies from from yesteryear to the standards of today it's important not to do that Uh um but but still yes like all the main characters are like i said white middle-aged guys um there are a few token uh minorities in it chewy tell edgiofor is in it he plays Karen knightley's husband um, sure Uh, yeah an early performance by him yeah before he really really took off um and then there's the yeah, like I said, not a lot of equal representation. It's all, all in addition to that, all the relationships are pretty heteronormative, which I feel like if this movie were made today it would be very, very different. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. Sorry. And the last thing, and this this is kind of the one that really is real problematic, is, is the Colin storyline where the guy who's like, the English guy who, who's like, can't get a girlfriend, so he decides to go to America and you know, hook up with, with American girls and he does. And it just kind of plays out like porno, like total male fantasy. Um, and I, th- I feel like it's, it's like essentially a riff on American pie. Cause that's when that was still Ooh, kind of a big thing. Okay. And that's, yeah. uh, and Shannon Elizabeth herself is, is, par- is, is in there. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was still, I mean, it's really funny. There's a lot of great gags. Uh, the soundtrack is, is really brilliant actually. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a movie from 15 years ago. Okay. Uh, like I said, I, I, there's a lot of women in my life that, that really adore this movie. And I've always wondered why, because I've seen it a few times. It is a, it is a Christmas staple around our house. So before I go too far into the minefield <laughs> that is criticizing love, actually, I'd like to state that, like you said, it has its audience and I see a lot of reasons why people like it. But for a moment... Let's dig into Love Actually before I pull right back out and just talk about this quote along <laughs> screening as a whole because I've never been to one and that sounds like the worst circumstances to see a film in for me. Sure, um, sure. But I want to get to that. Love Actually. I agree. It's pretty much all middle-aged white dudes. You're totally right. 
I I find most of their storylines to be very surface. And this is one of the first surface meaning not particularly deep. And this is one of the first films that came out to do the montage rom-com kind of thing where they were like, yeah. let's have five little storylines instead of one good one. Um, and, and, and that ten, really and took ten off. who's who actors as well. Yeah, sure. After after this, I think you got a movie like New York, I Love You. You got the, 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 the Valentine's Day movie. Just off the top of my head, there was a New Year's one. Uh, I can't remember all of them. But I feel like there's always a holiday who's who movie. Yes, uh, and that, that is a lot of what this is. To, to, to dig briefly into the storylines that I remember, um, because I, I, I don't recall all of them, uh, the storyline with Liam Neeson and his son, who is that kid on Game of Thrones, who turns out is like 35, but still looks like a kid, feels strained and ultimately forced and ends in a totally pre-9-11 run through an airport that in no way would work now and, and yeah, acts exactly. as a, a scene that is a poster child for film in the post-9-11 era, because that scene completely the falls apart the funny thing is that i mean they they reference 9-11 in the movie so they know it's post 9-11 but it's still yes yes uh andrew lincoln's storyline andrew lincoln of course uh star of the walking dead or formerly star as of this recording uh his storyline with kira knightley and shuatil ajufor is is creepy Su- super stalkery cringy. and ultimately horrible yeah he he is not a good friend uh he, he is not a good person the guy went to his buddy's wedding and filmed exclusively his wife. It's pretty odd. And ultimately, that relationship is a danger to everybody involved and will probably lead to emotional ruin. Colin Firth's story <laughs> is uh, uh, a little exploitative, I think is safe to say. Yeah, he's this yes. prince, uh, knight in shining armor Englishman who shows up to whisk away this woman in a language he barely understands. It's sweet of him to learn it. But ultimately, a little forced. Uh, that is, of course, the flip side of the one, I can't remember the guy's name, the British guy who goes to Wisconsin, who is just That's all Colin. kinds of creep. Col- yeah, all kinds of creep. Uh, he's a whole, I thought you were talking about Colin Firth. Uh, he's okay. a whole other kind of beast. And then you also have Alan Rickman's uh, story with Emma Thompson, which is heartbreaking and features a surprise appearance by Rowan Atkinson, who made <laughs> yes. the poster of the film, who is featured on there, even though he's in the movie for three minutes. Uh, that is a, a a brilliant performance by Emma Thompson, for what it's worth, who, who should have gotten more credit, uh, and ultimately shows that Alan Rickman can play a fantastic scumbag for what he's worth. Uh, oh, you've also got the Bill Nye storyline, uh, who turns out to be surprise kind of gay, I think, but I don't really know. <laughs> I think like, it's more I, more of a platonic thing. I I never see. That's what I mean. I could never really figure that out. That's probably uh, the most endearing love story in that movie. Sure. And then the least endearing, which is the part everybody seems to forget about. And then every year, my mom or or, or Christine watches it uh, before the holiday. We get to this scene and then we go, "Oh right, this is in the movie." The the incredibly abrasive uh, pornography stand-ins with Martin Freeman and uh, Joanna Page, I think is her name. Yeah, who who are stand-ins at a, a in a porno film. Um, that stuff in no way needed to be in the movie. Oh my god! And then Hugh Grant, I forgot about his story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He does like ten of these things. He's the prime minister uh, alongside uh, a, a, an odd performance by Billy Bob Thornton as the president of the United States. Um, he's got, of course, a brilliant dance scene in the film, uh, but ultimately he hooks up with his secretary. Intern. Yeah, secretary, something like that. Oh, God, intern. Underling. Um, Yeah, it's it's a weird movie, and there's a lot of problems in it. 
why is it such a hit? Why is it age so well? Because because a lot of women love this movie, and I, I I don't feel that way. So you know, a lot of film is definitely about fantasy, and a lot of these, a lot of rom coms do that. You know, it's like like you think of uh, oh, what's the one where he stands out and and holds up the radio, gross. No, not gross. Point blank. Uh, Oh my the, god! The Hold John on. I'm, Cusack I'm, man, I'm, a, I'm a diehard John Cusack film fan. Let me fill this. Yeah. It's not high fidelity. Well, Give me a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Any. Anyways, but a it lot of all these things that, that happen on film work in the world of film. But when you think about them, say in real anything. Life, the movie is right. say anything. My God. Yeah. When you do them in real life, they're just like, oh no, you're, you're going to get a restraining order, man. Like someone's going to call the the police on you. Like yeah. And there's things that work in film that do not work in real life. And I think I feel like as time goes on, we the public wants their films to be more and more down to earth, more and more like real life and realistic and kind of getting away from these fairy tale situations. And, and like you said, and I didn't really realize that, you know, a lot of these relationships in the movie actually feature men in power, getting women who have no power. Sure. There's, there's very little diversity in the cast. Um, I, yeah, it's just an odd movie. Like, and I look at it now and I'm like, what, what is it that people really liked about this? And I'm not sure. I, I, mean, I, I don't it, really know. It is really funny. There are a lot of good gags. There are a lot of good jokes. I mean, I, I laughed uh, a lot through the movie. It's, I mean, it is funny. It is genuinely enter- entertaining. Um, and it's not as bad as, you know, older films, older rom-coms from the mid-90s or before. So it's, you know, it's, it's getting there. It's just not quite there yet. How is this quote along? I want to hear about that. Uh, so that was fine. So like I said, th- if you were could picture you and your five good friends watching a movie you've all seen a dozen times, <laughs> sitting in your living room, uh, just making comments, quoting along with the movie, and just making jokes and yelling and having fun, that's kind of picture that in, in the theater. Mm. I guess that makes sense. With the props and everything, that sounds... Rough and frankly, watching a rom com that I've clearly got some ideological issues with makes it sound like it would be even worse. I I need to go to something like a Rocky Horror Midnight Screening or like The Room. I know they do those yeah, and like yeah. those are quote alongs, but those are like I don't know goofy B movies. I feel like I could get more on board with those. Something like Love Actually. I'm like, man, I I, I would go if Christine really wanted to go, and I should probably ask her because it'd probably make for a great date night. But yeah, I, I, I I think they are doing an encore. Yeah, I, for what it's worth, I, maybe not my scene. But hey, it's good to know it's it's worth the time if you can swing it. Was it like a total mess? I'm curious. When you left that theater, just stuff everywhere. Was that? I mean, probably. But like oh, I said, the, the interesting thing is, I mean, it was packed. Yeah. You know, and, and theaters are always trying to think of ways to get people in seats. And uh, this is definitely a successful one. Mm. No. Let me impress. For anybody who's interested in going to a quote along or has been to one or <laughs> thinks we know nothing about Love Actually and would love to revisit it, because honestly, if somebody requested, I would do a full review on Love Actually. I'd be happy to watch it and like break it down and, and go back and look at it. Uh, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Drop Andy a hot message and let him know he's totally right or totally <laughs> wrong. Yeah. And we'll see how that goes. Uh, anything else you'd like to say before we move on to our last movie? No, I think I'm ready. All right, the final film of the evening. I've been tasked with taking the summary on this. I'm going to be honest, I'm a little concerned. Uh, I, I didn't do much practice before this because I figured you'd want to take it, but it'll be fine. Uh, the movie is Yorgos Lanthimos's The Favorite. Dearest queen, you are mad, giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs. Molly. We are at war. We won. Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh. Oh, I did not know that. 
So before I dig into Yorgos Lanthimos and what he's about, let's just look at the plot of the film. The favorite is the story of Queen Anne III in Britain, as Britain is fighting, or England, I should say, is fight in a war with France. The Whigs and the Tories, the two main parties, have a lot to say to her about whether or not we should continue with war with France or go for peace. Uh, her kind of best friend, I should say, who governs the country in her stead while she is ill, which she is ill through the course of the movie, is uh, Lady Sarah Marlborough, played uh, by Rachel Weiss. Weiss? Weiss? How do we feel about Vi that? Weiss. I'm going with Weiss. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to make sure we were both on the same page. I, I think Weiss is the way to say it. Uh, Lady Vi Lady <laughs> Lady Marlborough uh, uh, governs in her stead. Uh, she 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 is her best friend, and she takes care of her on the side. But mostly, she's running the country, and Queen Anne is completely oblivious. Uh, this woman named Abigail, a, a blonde Emma Stone, rolls into the palace looking for work. Uh, Lady Marlborough agrees to give her a job as a scullery maid, and slowly Abigail grows close to the queen. Where suddenly uh, the queen is having the two play favorites against each other uh, to see which one of them uh, has more adoration for her. Right. Um, set in this really fantastic Victorian backdrop of, 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 of war and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Extravagance, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we, we have this fantastic story of two women vying for attention of another. Really interesting stuff. Andy, what did you think of Yorgos Lanthimos as the favorite? Man, so I'm still unpacking this movie. There's a lot in it. Um, in short, I, I thought it was really pretty brilliant, and I'm still trying to think. I mean, it's kept me thinking, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what all it's about. Um, but I, I want to start on the kind of the technical level, like how it's shot is really what stood out to me. There's a lot of... Um, like uh, use of lots of different lenses, lots of fisheye, lots of kind of low angles, um, lots of kind of swinging camera or maybe dolly as, as well that just, um, it really helps you to kind of flow through the through the palace. And, you know, I, I saw it with some friends and they were, <laughs> a friend of mine leaned over and said, oh, I'm kind of getting dizzy from watching this, you know? So like the camera work is really, it's a big part of the film. And like you have these skewed and distorted perspectives. Um, the other thing that really stands out to me is the use of light and shadow. Um, a lot of times the film is completely bright and is like outdoors or you'll be inside, but the light is streaming in and it's super bright. But then you also have really dark shadows or at night when they have to do everything by candlelight and it's just super dark and pitch black. And, you know, these two kind of filming techniques really stood out to me. And like I said, I'm still digesting the story. I think I liked it, but I'm still really th uh, thinking about it. Uh, what about you? I enjoyed this movie so much more than I thought I would. Um, it, it, it is not my favorite film of the year, but it's up there. Keep an eye out for this movie in my top 10, possibly my top five. I, I was crazy about this movie. There, there are a few movies so far this year that we've watched and I got to the end and I wanted to stand up and applaud uh, when the movie <laughs> hit credits. This was one of them. I was stunned by how cool this movie was. You, you hit the nail right on the head and there's many more nails to hit and I want to get to as many as we can. The way the film is shot, its cinematography is incredible. It is experimental and it is beautiful and often hallucinatingly vivid. Uh, the way the film is lit is gorgeous. A ton of natural light, but when you need to use artificial, it is exclusively candlelight. It is a 
beautiful red flame to contrast with the white opaqueness of the clouds outside. The film is gorgeously set dressed. The costumes are incredible. The performances are Oscar worthy. The music is stunning. The dialogue is fantastic. I loved everything about this movie and I don't have (laughs) enough good things to say about it. So let's start off exactly where you said, let's look at cinematography and the way the film was shot. Yorgos Lanthimos, is not a stranger to filming things in unique ways. He's previously right. done Dogtooth, The Lobster, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer, to name a few. Two of which, well, one of which we've definitely covered on this show. The other we'll get to. But uh, for what it's worth, he's a unique director, and a lot of people haven't seen his work. Andy, how do you feel, watching this movie, about recommending this to people who don't know Yorgos Lanthimos? I feel like this is actually one of his more accessible films. Totally. Um, which, honestly, I've only seen <laughs> Killing of a Sacred Deer, but from what I understand, The Lobster and Dogtooth are very kind of eccentric and out there and kind of maybe a little bit difficult for the average person. So I, I feel like this is a good blend of you know something that's a little bit more accessible but also definitely has his style and his signature on it. I agree. I, I've seen, again, three of his movies, the three I mentioned. Uh, he sees a lot of fisheye in this movie. A lot of yeah. fisheye. And there's a lot of, like, long hallways in these palaces with beautiful, ornate walls and ceilings and tapestries and fixtures. It's gorgeous. But the use of fisheye is real odd. And it's in the trailer. I mean, when you watch, you'll see fisheye shots. And they're 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 very... They, they pop in such an odd, off-putting way. And I, I, I struggle to think of why he thought that was a good idea. Visually, it's super engaging, but I, I'm not sure what he got out of it. If I had to guess, hear me out, it's because when you're using a fisheye lens, in fact, there's one shot where this is beautifully portrayed. Somebody's wheeling the queen down a hallway, and you've got this parallel shot, and the hallway bends up at the ends of the frame on the sides to almost make like a, a, a semicircle in frame right, right. for what should be a straight hallway. And I don't know if that's to show the world revolves around this queen and everything is orbiting her, or if that's to show visual discrepancies when you pan the camera because when you move... I don't want to get too far into it, but the point is is that, yeah, it's, it's, it's really something else to watch, and that's just in the look of the normal day-to-day shot. He also uses a lot of, like you said, angles looking up real sharp. Like, bury the camera in the floor looking up yeah. at somebody sharp. Like, and there are shots, I swear, you can see up Rachel Weiss's nose. Like, it's so up, look, uh, looking up at her, which in film is, of course, indicative of somebody having power over another character. And that happens a lot in this movie because power is a very important theme. We should right, talk definitely. about that. Definitely. Some of the themes in the film. Uh, well, d- just like what to take off on what you said, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to express meaning and themes through film and what people forget is yeah how you shoot a film how, the, the lenses and the angles and all that and he definitely uses a lot of that and this and and his past work as well i actually saw a um an article earlier that argued that in killing of a sacred deer there's pulsing used in in the uh, how it's shot to mimic the heart the human heart because that's right. a, a theme in that film as well um but yeah to, to talk about themes of power yes everyone is vying for for power in one way or another. Even Queen Anne herself, because she kind of feels powerless against Lady Sarah, but then Lady Sarah doesn't have all the power either. And then you have um, Nicholas Holt's character, um, who's uh, the, the Whig leader, I, right. I believe, who's the also leader of the Whigs. who's also trying to get 
his way as well and has to try to convince the queen and has to and you know ends up confiding with uh abigail and and so it, it's a huge power struggle and no one's no one's really ever at the top there's just kind of some people have power in different areas and they all kind of have to use each other and work together or um blackmail each other <laughs> sure there's there's a fascinating scene very early uh, a montage which yorgos lanthimos is not against using of a lot of these super ornate Victorian uh, looking folks standing around watching a duck race and they're in this palace and they're all cheering on these ducks and the cameras at duck level looking up at these people and they're wearing these huge wigs and these incredible outfits. The costumes in this movie are truly stunning. I'm not sure who did the costuming but they'd, they'd better be up for an Oscar this year. And they're all standing around cheering these ducks on. And it's like, you guys are the height of society. Your country is at war. People are starving and dying. And at one point, it, as, it, as it says in the film, shitting in the streets. Like, that's where society is. And you're all concerned about Duck ducks. Yeah, that's what's going on. And that's... Like, the movie does a great job of making these, 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 these high royals, these bougie people, uh, look foolish for what they are. And that that's... Part of, I think, the I mean, it has to be part of the intention. Uh, another main theme in this film is death uh, and what it means to truly live. Uh, there's there's themes of religion. There's mention of God, Mary Magdalene uh, in, in, in yeah. one scene of a uh, what I think is a whorehouse. Uh, as a big question of love and what it means to love somebody. There's truth versus falsehood. There's questions of morality. This is one of those movies, man, that's got layers on layers, and every time you watch it, you can pick something else out of it, and I love movies like that. Yeah, de definitely. Um, the other thing is, you know, inequality, the difference between the the very rich and the very poor. You know, like you said, the wealthy people are duck racing, and then you have the scullery maids sleeping 15 people in a room. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, so you have, yeah, definitely the, that um, kind of difference in, in prosperity uh the other thing is is kind of like th this idea of of being trapped or being kind of imprisoned because uh queen anne even though she's the queen she is kind of held captive by her ailments like she's constantly sick in the movie she has suffers really bad gout she you know can't eat a lot of certain things she eventually kind of has a stroke i mean she's just she's not falling well. apart yeah yeah yeah, and then other people perceived to have power but are kind of trapped in their spots as well. You know, uh, Abigail and Lady Marlborough or Lady Sarah as well are kind of trapped in their positions to a certain extent. Right, and and that's that's a great kind of overarching question of the film is what what does it mean to have power? You know, what does it mean to be able to rule? And are you ruled by that power or, or do you wield that power? To use with other people and and everybody has to play that game in this film um and it's never it's never like hit really on its nose right it's always just just like any good movie i think it's always just kind of happening in the background and you wonder uh i i wanted to talk about performances in this film stunning performances by olivia coleman as queen yeah. anne uh rachel vice as lady Marlborough and and Emma Stone as Abigail. Any favorites? Anything that really stood out to you? What would you think? I mean, Olivia Coleman for sure. Uh, I mean, I think she's gonna get an Oscar nom for this. I mean, she's just she's so eccentric 
and she's got these scenes where she's yelling at people that's just so over the top and so uncalled for most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she dials it back and is also very vulnerable and very meek and helpless at the same same time. So it's very, you know, there's this real dichotomy between the two. Um, Rachel Weiss really stood out to me because she generally always p- plays good guys, protagonists, Mm-hmm. And and she's man, she is nasty in this movie, and and she like she just has this real cutting wit, like oh you right, know, yeah, nobody can keep up with her. Yeah, I mean, it's just like at every turn, she's cutting down everyone, you know, cutting me deep <laughs> um, with her with her words, and that you know that's kind of another theme of the movie as well is like you the use of of language to uh, help you wield your powers is very you know prevalent. Hmm. I, yeah, I hate to say if there was anybody who had a, the weakest performance of those three, and this is by no means a slight against her, it'd be Emma Stone. And it's not because she did a bad job. It's because the others did such a good job. I have to put her at the bottom of that list. All three of them are tremendous. Olivia Coleman, unrecognizable as Queen Anne. I, I mean, I, I never thought to myself, this is an actress. I was completely convinced she is this, this character, this person who has many layers and, and complex problems. Uh, Rachel Weiss, I'm stunned by her. Uh, I, I, I certainly hope she gets a Best Actress or at the very least Best Supporting Actress nom for this. She may have my vote for the year, depending on who else is in that category. <laughs> um, she was easily my favorite of the running favorites. Uh, I was rooting for her the whole movie. And at the end, because uh, I know that's... I don't want to... I'm Not to spoil it. That's not what we're here for. I felt the ending... It was exactly what I, it wasn't what I expected, but somewhere along the way I remembered, oh yeah, this is a Yorgos Lanthimos film. This probably isn't going to go the way I hope it does. And <laughs> yeah. it goes, it, it, I wasn't disappointed, I should say. And that's what I have to say about it. So yeah, the, the ending leaves you with a lot to think about. I'm still kind of mulling it over. And this is definitely something I, I need to see again. And to kind of begin to pick it apart, because there's definitely, like I said, a lot of the thematic stuff that I didn't quite catch the first time around. I did want to talk about, before we move on to recommendations, because we are running way long on this, uh, the dialogue in the film. And this is this is part of the reason I feel this movie is so perfect as an entry for a Yorgos Lanthimos film, if you haven't seen one. This is the first Yorgos Lanthimos film I've seen that he didn't write. This was written by two other people. Dogtooth, uh-huh. The Lobster, and Killing of a Sacred Deer were all him. And this has a ton of the traditional hallmarks of Yorgos Lanthimos' film in that characters say exactly how they feel without hesitation or remorse, especially sexually charged things, which are often used for comedic effect. There were a lot of laughs in my audience. A lot yeah, of people yeah. laughed at stuff in Definitely. this movie. Whereas me, of course, I'm sitting there like silently taking in the cinema with my legs crossed and like enjoying my, <laughs> exactly. you know. Uh, but there was, a, there was a lot of that. And I think setting this film in the Victorian era and putting it in a palace and putting it back in time helps his style feel natural because he often f- makes things feel so foreign. Killing of a Sacred Deer is a great example. It does not feel like a film that's set in reality, even though that's supposed to be real life, modern times. It feels like this alternate dimension of a universe where people talk differently and feel differently and express themselves differently. In this movie, it feels that way, but because it's a different time and a different place, somehow it feels natural. I'm like, this probably is how things were supposed to be, and it's shot brilliantly, and the dialogue is cut together 
so perfectly. Rachel Weisz's biting wit comes through sharp as a tack. Olivia Coleman cries and screams and it cuts like a knife. Um, it's all really good stuff. Yeah, it, it really does such a great job of transporting you to the era. And, and I know like the Victorian time period is, is a lot of time very much romanticized as, as this like really sophisticated moral society and and we're shown that it, it's no different and it's incredibly decadent and exploitative as any time in history mm-hmm. there's other things i want to say about it but i know we're running short on time and frankly i've been swept up by the conversation and i'm having trouble recalling what exactly it was i wanted to say so for what it's worth andy any other thoughts before we move on to recommendations i'm ready would you recommend the favorite yeah, absolutely. Definitely one of the most unique films of the year. Great performances all around. Incredibly shot, well lit, unbelievable costumes. I went with uh, our friend Amanda, who's been on the show, and who is in fashion and makes clothes, and she was just blown away by uh, the costuming. I definitely think it'll be nominated and probably win Best Costume. Um, I would be surprised if anything else really came close. Um, and and it's you know what? It's great to see a, a female led led film where even though this time would have definitely been a, a male dominated period in history, we get a story about three women. I much like Mandy for me, this again, to echo what I said at the beginning of the film, uh, at the beginning of the review, uh, this will be in my top 10 list. It may be in my top five. Keep an eye out for it. I was stunned by the favorite. I can't believe how much I enjoyed it. It is an incredible film. It is some of the boldest cinema I've watched this year. Run, do not walk to the theater to go see the favorite. <laughs> A stunning recommendation for me. My God, I loved this movie. Not for everybody. And it's got to be... You got to be a certain kind of person to enjoy it, but for what it's worth, it is the most approachable of Yorgos Lanthimos' films. It is the best place to start in on his filmography as it is current. Uh, I don't, can't predict what he'll make in the future, but um, fantastic performances all around. Uh, I think it's no coincidence we've seen Rachel Weisz in two brilliant films this year, Disobedience and The Favorite. I can't wait to see this film at the Oscars. I love yeah. The Favorite. And that wraps our show excuse my gushing my god i thought the favorite was so cool man uh we should talk about what we're seeing next week did we work that out i know we we're talking about the beginning of the movie yes the beginning of the, the yeah so um I'll, I'll talk about the first one so uh schindler's list is being re-released this friday i think for one or two days only um mm. it's the 25th year anniversary of Steven Spielberg's uh, kind of magnum opus uh, about the Holocaust and Oscar Schindler, a German who saved over 2,000 Jews during the Holocaust. Um, it came out in 1993. It won Best Picture, uh, as well as a number of other awards. Hugely important film in modern cinema, and it's going to be in theaters uh, this Friday. So I'm going to go definitely go check that out. I'm excited to see Schindler's List, and I'll tell you why. Because it's a white whale of mine. I've had the special edition DVD of Schindler's List for, like, six years. Still have the plastic on it. One of the few movies in my collection that I do. I've never sat down to watch it, and it's always been a film that I've told myself, you know, I'm going to watch that someday. And then anytime I think, maybe I should watch Schindler's List, I think, hmm, do I want to watch a little over three-hour black-and-white Holocaust film? Not really. Like, that sounds kind of horrible. But for what yeah, it's yeah. worth, this is a great reason to do it. I know it's an award-winning film. I, I'm, I'm, I've had it for so long. It's high time I get cracking on Schindler's List. And the theatrical re-release may be just the thing that gets me over and, and makes it happen. And what else are we going to watch? So 
we're going to be on the lookout for Mary Queen of Scots, uh, which stars uh, Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie as uh, Queen Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots. Yes. <laughs> um, so I definitely want to see this film. It looks like it's being re- ha- it's having a limited release, so it might come out in in our area. It might not. We're going to kind of wait and see. And if it falls through, then we're going to look uh, for something on Netflix that's, yeah. that's new new this month to, to stream. We've, we haven't narrowed that down, uh, but we'll see. There's a lot of great movies coming out this month. This week, unfortunately, is a struggle. But we will find something, and we will be back next week for an episode. I do want to mention, before we get too far off the beaten path here, at the end of the month, look forward to our top ten list. I ran it by Andy, and he was like, yeah, sure, so we're going to do it. Uh, the last episode of December, I'd like to put together a top 10 for both of us and we'll go down the list and reveal what we like the most out of the year, kind of revisit them for just a few minutes. I think it'll make for some really good stuff. So look forward yeah. to that. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, if you liked Green Book, if you don't like the controversy, if you don't think Love Actually is all it's cracked up to be or think it's way more than we think it is. If you loved The Favorite or maybe if you hated it, let us know in the comments uh, below. I don't know this isn't a YouTube video, but uh, subscribe <laughs> where you can. Mail us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're out there. We're hanging out. And we want you to come be a part of it. And thanks for listening. Most importantly, the show could not be what it is without each and every one of you. And we appreciate you. And we'd appreciate it if you left a review. Like rate or something. You know how it goes. It's fine. That's right. From all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.